Welcome to Pediatric Meltdown, the podcast about children's mental health and emotional well-being. I'm Dr. Leah Gugino, a primary care pediatrician, and I created this podcast for the pediatric medical community and anyone who cares about children's behavioral health. Pediatric Meltdown offers thoughtful conversations featuring experts from the field. Learn practical strategies from the best and become a savvier clinician. Hey, listeners, welcome back to another episode of Pediatric Meltdown. And my guest today is Dr. Ken Ginsberg, and you're in for a treat. Dr. Ginsberg is the founder and program director for the Center for Parent and Teen Communication. He is a physician, adolescent medicine specialist, and professor of pediatrics at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is committed to preparing adults to be the kind of people that adolescents deserve in their lives. He supports local, regional, and national organizations in developing programs and policies that strengthen families and see young people through a strength-based lens. He speaks to parent, professional, and youth audiences nationally and internationally, and is the author of five award-winning parenting books, as well as a toolkit for youth-serving professionals. CPTC is rooted in his strength-based philosophy and resilience-building model. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Ken Ginsberg. Hey, Ken, how are you? I'm doing great. It's good to be here. Well, I really want to thank you so much for taking time to do this. And I'm so pumped to have this conversation because I think we all sometimes dread adolescents, whether it's our own, our teenagers, or as clinicians, like, oh my God, it's going to be so difficult. And you come at it from a totally different viewpoint. And I was able to listen to you on Pediatrics on Call, the AAP's podcast, and I was just so intrigued. So thanks so much. And I, I guess to start, why don't you tell us a little bit, how did you get into pediatrics in the first place? Oh gosh, I have been a child protector from the time I was probably three or four, according to my parents. So there was never a question about whether or not I was going to do pediatrics, right? And I taught nursery school. I was a child development major. I got a master's in human development. So I was all about pediatrics. The tougher question was how I focused on adolescence because I love little kids so much. And if I just had to be happy, I would be on a deserted island with four-year-olds. Um, <laughs> but or that could be that. Could, I remember my daughter when she was four. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> oh, gosh, I love them. I guess I'd like another adult to have for occasional supervision. But <laughs> the uh, but for adolescents, it really is just this extraordinary opportunity to have a lifelong impact. It's that second window of astounding brain development, as well as all other kinds of identity of development, most significantly identity development. And it means that important adults in young people's lives make a profound lifelong difference and affect the next generation of children, right? So it just, uh, I don't like adolescents more than I like little kids, but I love what I can do with adolescents. And I love what I can change about people's perceptions of adolescence. I love that. I wish you'd been around when my daughter was in junior high. I think I think there was that period of latency when they're like 10, 11, 12, and they love you and it's so fun. And then in that middle school, I think because of, at least my experience, it's sort of that peers become so important. And 
I kind of felt like I wasn't ready to not be needed or what I perceived not to be needed. Do you think that's a common experience for parents? I think it's almost a universal experience. And what I would point out is that you never stop being needed. And that's the point that we have to make to parents. And we, as pediatricians, have a unique opportunity to help parents understand this stage. I mean, let's think about the typical experience. You're standing in the grocery store line. Your child is 10 or 11. They have their head on your shoulders and you're having just one of those wonderful moments. And the mother in front of you, who has a 15-year-old, turns around and says to you, get those hugs while you can. She's going to become a monster you may not like. And this is poison. This is a poisonous message. This is a message that the kids hear. And then what it makes them understand is that their parent is fearing their development, which is something they couldn't stop even if they wanted to. But that's poison. And in the beginning, when you talked about how we so commonly, even pediatricians, dread the coming of adolescence, that is toxic to human development. And I want to be clear, I do love adolescence with all my heart and soul, but this is also strategic. It's strategic because adults, including pediatricians, are essential in the well-being of adolescent development. And if we dread this time period, we will remove ourselves from involvement precisely when we're needed the most. And if we reframe and help people understand what's really going on, then the most important question that parents ask during adolescence, which is, do I still matter? Right? That most important question has to be answered with a resounding yes. So with that by way of intro, can I like go back to your statement of what it felt like to you when your kid was 11? Oh, yeah. I, I mean... That resonates on many levels. One is I distinctly remember this being in the water with my daughter who was at the 10, my youngest daughter who was 10 and floating around. And I remember specifically saying to her, do you promise you'll love me when you're older? Because my older daughter was in, she would have been like a freshman in high school. And that's where I was feeling like she, I, that, that part about I don't matter. And in thinking about it now, I feel like, oh my God, I've been that person who said like, enjoy this while you can, because look out. So yeah, have at it. Yeah. So respectfully and lovingly, what you did to your younger daughter is set up an expectation for her that she would separate from you instead of setting up the expectation that you're going to develop into a beautiful, independent human being. And I'm along for the journey and to be your guide. And there'll be moments you want more of me and moments you want less of me. And all you need to know is I am always there, right? That's the message. And so let's go back and let's, because I actually think that we talk about anticipatory guidance as pediatricians, and I just can't think of a better thing for us to do during the 10 or 11 year old visit. Let's have a frank conversation with our parents about what it'll be, it'll feel like to be pushed away and to help them with a reframing message that makes it clear so that when parents are pushed away, they walk away with this overriding thought. My kid loves me so much. It hurts. 
They mm. hate me so much that they're pretending they don't. Mm. Right? Like if that's the message that they have and they're prepared to have, then they're going to be able to handle that moment that you experience. So let's create a metaphor. Before we go on, I just want you to repeat that. My kid loves me so much. It hurts and needs me so much. That they pretend they don't. Oh, okay. Right. I love and that. Yeah. So the second app I just made up right now with you. But the truth <laughs> is that it's just real, right? So, so what's happening? When kids are children, they're like birds in this like fluffy little nest, right? They, we give them everything they need. They open their little mouths, they chirp. And then these one or two adults, maybe an extended group of adults, hands them all the fat juicy worms they need. And they are so grateful and they don't need to fend for themselves. And then brain puberty strikes. And when brain puberty occurs, it basically communicates to a human being, at some point, I need to know how to do this myself. And as a result, the first thing that they do is they look at this fluffy nest and they begin saying, actually, it's a little bit prickly. And then they begin looking at these birds, bringing them these big juicy worms, and they become embarrassed by the way they breathe because they want to imagine life without that. And when they understand how deeply reliant they are, it really lies in the face of what's happening to their brain and body, which is they're becoming more independent. So then adolescence continues and then think like senior year of high school. Now they know they're going to need to fly off on their own, which is really the most absurd thing a human being does in development, which is leave this nest where most of their needs are cared for and go out and fly on their own. It's sheer madness. So the only way you can get yourself to do it is to not only imagine that nest as prickly, but to begin to see it as uninhabitable. I couldn't take one more minute here. Now, when we get hurt and offended, when we beg our children to love us, then what happens is we are flying in the face of their development. When on the other hand, we love them without condition, our presence is undeniable, we serve as guides and we honor their growing independence, right? Then what happens is we don't install those control buttons. Kids learn they can fly on their own. And once they can fly on their own, they return for safe landings. Right? I wish I'd had you for like a cheerleader, honestly. I mean, I think there were some times I did okay, but... I, being an anxious person and having had a pretty tumultuous and difficult childhood, you bring your baggage. So uh, I think a lot of parenting, and again, I'm talking about my own experience, was out of fear. And I, I mean, I've said to parents and kids, the reason your parents are like driving you nuts is because in their head, they're thinking they don't want you to die, get pregnant, or have a drug addiction. So they're, that's what they're worried about. And so if they act crazy, that's where they're coming from. So anything you can do to help them not worry so much, like let them know when you'll be home on time and then do it, that'll help ease the skids. Now, did I do that as well with my own kids? Eh, if I could go back, although my kids have assured me, mom, we're fine. So I guess, <laughs> and they're decent people. So I guess it wasn't all bad, but you know, it's, it, it, it Hearing the part about 
you have this lovely opportunity to be a guide and they need you to be a guide. I think the hard part is like, I'm not quite sure I know how to be that guide. So, so what are some of the myths that we have to blow up in order to be an effective guide? Can we back up? Yeah, absolutely. I, I love what you said in the office as a partial statement, but may I respectfully rephrase <laughs> Absolutely. I wish you could have done this about 20 years ago, but yeah, go for it. How about you add, and their goal is for you to thrive as an adult. Yeah, absolutely. All that is good and right about you, and they want to see you be that human being. How about you add that? And then you say, and they're afraid that you get hurt Mm -hmm. and therefore want to make sure that you're safe. And And get crazy about it. I mean, um, yes, occasionally. Yeah. The other thought that struck me is that I think speaking to a pediatrician audience or anybody with an MD behind their name, I think many of us have more than average anxiety, right? This hypervigilance, this desire to be good at, at everything. And so how do we parent when we're anxious? I think that we show them how we are maintaining our equilibrium, right? So when we have a five-year-old, we want to look like that duck gliding on the water, right? Just know it's all, can handle anything, because we want to co-regulate and lend that sense of calm and security. But if you look like that person or that duck that is unflappable to an adolescent, you're actually not helping them develop, because that doesn't feel like their life. So If you are anxious as a parent or as a pediatric parent, right? If you are anxious, then let's come closer to truth telling. Let's look like the duck that's floating on the water, but only because our little feet are paddling like crazy underneath and show them and share with them those strategies we use to maintain course even when we're uncomfortable. When we show how our little feet paddle, how we get to calm, all of that is deeply helpful developmentally. Well, and I think it's okay to reassure people like you're not going to always get this right. You're going to mess it up. But I think about in terms of being a pediatrician where a lot of the work I've done is in suicide prevention mm-hmm. and is about it's really important if, a, if we ask, if we're going to ask, are you having thoughts? And they say, yes, our reaction has to be, I've got this. It's okay that you told me that. I'm not freaked out. So I'm, like you said, sort of regulating my own light because in my head, I'm going, oh God, how worried do I have to be? But that there are skills and strategies to help you sort out how worried should should I be? And then to convey to them, we have a plan. I can help you with this. It's going to be okay. So I think it feels a little bit like that. Like I am panicking on the inside a little bit, but I also can lean on my skills. And I think as parents, other people, I mean, thank God I had a spouse who was not anxious. <laughs> so he was kind of like, eh, it's going to be fine. So that we have those people around us, our colleagues that can kind of talk you off the ledge, so to speak. Yeah, you brought up a really important concept, whether you're talking to the young person who's had suicidal thoughts or whether you're talking about us as human beings. the One of the key things that we have to bring to the table is you're not alone. Mm. I got you. I'm yeah. with you. Because together, 
We are stronger than the sum of our individual parts. And that is something that we really have to convey in all settings. And yeah, there's this setting, I think, for a pediatrician to admit to a parent that we all are human, meaning we all will make mistakes. What makes us good people is not making mistakes. It's trying to rectify it and sharing with the people we love the journey we took to rectify them so that they don't have to make some of the same mistakes that we've made. Sure. I love that. I did a podcast not too long ago with Heather Forkey, who's done a lot of work on resilience. And she talks about the trauma response of fight, flight, freeze. And then she added another one, affiliate, which was find your peeps so that that's another option to stress and toxic stress or whatever the situation is, is like, don't be alone. Don't worry alone because you can create this mess in your head. And as a parent, I mean, I'm thinking in my head, my kid's out, it's late. Oh my God. Are they wrapped around a tree somewhere? And how do we build in like the, I guess the strengths of a parent? It's really more about the parent, isn't it? Well, let's go. First of all, I know Heather Welch. She was a resident that I participated in her training. And as I'm also very interested in the trauma stress response so and resilience. So let's go with that for a second. There is good stress. Good stress is what brings our best selves to the table. There is toxic stress, which is stress that no human being should ever experience because it's never a good thing. And then there's tolerable stress. Tolerable stress is what could go in either direction depending on how you manage it, depending on who around you supports you and what skill sets you possess to be able to manage the situation. That is tolerable stress. And it's within the window of tolerable stress that adults that surround the child or adolescent make the biggest difference because we can help a person expand their window of tolerable stress. And that is literally what resilience is, right? is being able to handle more than you thought you could. And we start there by co-regulating, by lending our calm. Because when we lend our calm to a human being, then what happens is their amygdala, the reactive part of their brain says, I'm safe. And then the calm part of the brain, the part that reasons and plans and enables you to connect, which is your cerebral cortex, is able to have more power. And that is quadruply important during adolescence because in adolescence, the emotional centers are brilliant. They are developing at brilliant speeds, slightly ahead of the rational sense, which does not mean the rational sense is not developing. The rational sense is developing, absolutely, but the emotional sense is particularly brilliant. Why? Because you are developing as a human being, your body is changing, you are growing, and you're becoming sexualized to other people. And what that means is that other people may be attracted to you, they may try to dominate you, or whatever that didn't happen to you when you were 10. Which means that an adolescent simply has to be able to read people faster than they can learn algebra. So it makes total sense that the emotional brain in adolescence is brilliant. 
And how do we frame this and how do we explain this to parents? We don't frame this as kids are incomplete or irrational or all engine, no brakes or any of those toxic undermining messages about the adolescent brain. We speak about their emotional brilliance. We talk about why they need to be intuitive and wise and read people. We tell them that in order for their rational brain to take over, they need to feel calm. They need to feel safe. And that is, again, why our co-regulation is so important. It is our calming, guiding presence that allows them to think, plan, and reason. And it tells us, whether we're pediatricians or parents, how to talk to kids. When we... Oh, go, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm just when thinking. When we use cold communication, which is actually deeply warm, kids can listen. When we use hot communication, which is condescending and angry or it's lecturing and too abstract for kids to understand, they feel unstable. And when they feel unstable, they're all amygdala and they can't think. Cold communication is when we're calm, respectful, see them as experts in their own lives. And rather than deliver information in a lecture format, don't you understand that A goes to B, which is go to C, look at me, young man, when I'm talking to you, because you could die if you don't. Kids can't hear. But when we calmly put out ideas, ask questions, ask them to respond so that they get it, get it, got it one step at a time, that is cold communication and they can own the solutions. I love that. It's interesting. I came across a book that I thought was really helpful. I think there may be some in listening to you, there might be some problems with what it's communicating, but it was helpful to me, it was a book called Yes, Your Teen is Crazy. There was also a parent book that was called Yes, Your Parent is Crazy. What I found helpful in it, and maybe the wording of the title is not particularly supportive, but I think for me, and as I was talking to parents, it helped to understand that this emotional brain, when it does take over, your rational brain isn't as, fun- it's, it's hard to function when you're like overloaded. And that's why sometimes people don't always make the best decisions when they're angry. And for me, that was helpful to know, like, I'm not crazy in that this feels out of control. But, you know, in listening to what you're saying, I, I mean, you totally have reframed that that emotional piece that feels so overwhelming to us somebody that feels like they're out of control, that if we can couch it in, this is fabulous what you're doing. (laughs) But, you know, when a kid is unregulated or an adult or anyone, it's hard to be calm yourself. I mean, that's where you may get fearful or feel like threatened and want to fight back. I mean, that brings up your own fight, flight, or freeze, right? Absolutely. So let's go back and talk about the books that you liked. I also liked the content of that book, but there is no publisher in the world who would have talked me into using that title because that title is so deeply undermining to adolescents and therefore creates a cultural narrative. You spoke a few minutes ago about the myths and misperceptions of adolescents. And can we get back to that and why we need to do reframing and May I have permission to tell you about my next book, which is being published by the American Academy of Pediatrics, of course. Yes, absolutely. Go for it. Yeah. So on October 4th, congrats, you're having a teen. 
strengthen your family and raise a good person is coming out. It is a complete reframing of adolescence. It is also the most comprehensive book that I believe has ever been written to prepare adolescents, excuse me, to prepare parents to really understand how to communicate with adolescents by first really understanding all that's going on in development. And it doesn't blame the kid for being crazy, but it covers all the elements you just said. It helps parents understand the teen brain, why communicating differently is different, and then gives them the skill sets to do so. But let's talk about those myths, right? What is, and it very much refutes these myths and replaces them with the truths about adolescence. So the myths are that kids think they're invincible, that kids are inherently risky. Well, if you believe that, then you're going to believe that the best thing you can do for your kids is to protect them from themselves. If you, instead of develop them, if you believe that kids really hate their parents and don't care what adults think, you will not engage precisely during the time where your engagement matters most, right? So we have to refute these myths and tell the truth about adolescents, which is that adolescents care more about what adults think than any other people in their lives, including peers, right? That adult adolescents definitely do like adults, but they want to figure out how to be independent on their own and prefer adults to be guides rather than dictators, right? They want to learn control. Now, so far as adolescents thinking they're invulnerable or invincible, that is absolutely not true. It's been disproven. Adolescents are not inherently risky. Adolescents are human beings. And as human beings, there's a wide range of risk within them. There are adults who are risky, and there are adolescents who are risky. What adolescents are, are natural experimenters and natural explorers. They are always testing their limits, right? That is how they grow, because adolescents are super learners, and they will never again in their lives have a period of time where they will learn as rapidly as they're learning now. And as, as super learners and natural explorers, it is their job to stretch the limits of existing boundaries. Therefore, it is adults' job to create very clear boundaries beyond which they cannot stray and to create golden opportunities at the limits of what they know so that their brains, which want more and more knowledge, get it there. And they don't have to go beyond those points. So you make school incredibly enriching. You make home enriching. You make it so that when the kids are at their limits, their brains go, and are happy brains. If you don't give them those golden opportunities and don't set boundaries, then they will push too far and go into risk territory. So the part that I'm wondering, again, I not to that it's all about my experience, but my experience and my experience being a pediatrician for 30 years and listening to parents, I've often said to parents, kids often make choices. They may make choices that are bad ones. Our job as parents is to be role models. And if we're doing stupid stuff as adults, that's not helpful. It, our job is to not do those things because I've worked with many parents who have contentious divorces and are screaming at each other or 
have substance use problems or their their choices. And, and again, I mean, life is hard and things are difficult. But I'm also thinking about when kids do push the boundary. So, and sometimes it is it is dangerous stuff. They end up at a party where they didn't mean to bring they they didn't bring the alcohol, but somebody else did, and they get drunk, and it's things are things are difficult. So, what's your advice to parents when something goes awry? Because that's what they're scared about, right? Right. Well, kids, parents are not just scared. Parents also have a goal for their child to be successful far into the Absolutely. And to survive and to, to thrive, to thrive. To thrive and survive. So those are in it two words. And you don't want to have one without the other, right? But so your advice, you should have very clear boundaries about where your kids can stray and where they can't. We know based on 60 years of research, we know what parenting style makes it so your kid is less likely to engage in risk behavior, most likely to come to you when they're in trouble, most likely to be emotionally healthy. And that is balanced parenting, where we don't do the, you'll do what I say, why? Because I said so parenting, because we know that parenting, authoritarian parenting pushes kids away. We don't do the equal and opposite, permissive parenting. Darling, I love you so much. I trust you. Go make your, call me Ken. Go make your, <laughs> right? That permissive parenting we know makes for very, very anxious human being. And of course, we don't want disengaged parenting, which is kids will be kids, they'll figure it out. We want balanced parenting. I love you so much, but I'm not your friend. I'm your father and that's better for you. I'm going to let you make mistakes and I'm going to let you pick yourselves up. But for the things that matter, which are those things that involve your safety or your being a good person, you will do what I say. That works with mm. 60 years of research. I call it lighthouse parenting. I hope that many of you are also calling it lighthouse parenting, which is parents, you should be like a lighthouse for your child, a stable force on the shoreline from which your kids can measure themselves against. Look down at the rocks, make sure your kids don't crash against them. Look into the waves and trust that your kids will learn to navigate them, but prepare them to do so. It's so interesting that you're talking about it because I think back on situations and I remember when your kids are teenagers, I, I remember them saying, so-and-so's parents, we had a party and they let us drink. And, and you're thinking in your head, of course, I'm thinking in my head, like, no way is that going to happen. And you're thinking that's what your kid wants. But now as my kids are adults, they're like, God, no, we're so glad that we never tried to have a party at the house because we thought you would kill us if we did. And that was the last thing that we wanted. Of course, when they're teenagers, they can't tell you that. So I think if you know that you are saying these are these are hard stops and some stuff is not going to matter, even though you may lose it as a parent. But the other thing I was going to ask you, so as a pediatrician, what are your suggestions when you see the parents that are permissive, are too authoritative, are dismissive, and where you can be a guide? How, how do we be the lighthouse for those parents? Right. So I need to say that it takes time. And what I'm attempting to do, if you listen to my language, is I'm attempting to give you metaphors 
and words you can use to reframe the conversation. So very early on, I want parents to be prepared for adolescence and know it can be a great thing and to understand that their role is more and more important than ever, perhaps, and that they remain vitally important. Later on, as adolescents proceed, I want them to understand that their role as guides is vitally important and their role as understanding what are the hand on the stove moments of adolescence is critical, right? Mm -hmm. So we know not to let our two-year-olds put their hand on the stone and our stove and we're allowed to get as hysterical as we want when they get close. Driving drunk is a hand on the stove moment. Getting a B plus is not. And what we have to do is help parents understand that to be most effective, they have to have firm, clear rules beyond which kids cannot stray. But the kids have to understand that those rules exist because we are trying to keep them safe. Then, as pediatricians, we need to not undermine adolescents by putting, by reframing and using certain key lang words so that parents see adolescence as an opportunity to grow, not a time to be survived. And if you listen to what I've been saying, I've given you some of these words, but I didn't underscore them. So let me underscore them. Absolutely. Super learners, natural explorers, right? You are guides. Your child's, this is an opportunity for them to grow. Your presence is vital, right? These are things that we want to say instead of that fear mongering. Mm -hmm. We also want to give parents the skills, right? So you talked about how what happens when your kid goes to the party and that we give them the skill of giving the kid a code word. Yeah. So the kid at that party will use the code word. The code word is now a universal concept found everywhere. And I will tell you that I coined it and it's from Mama Ginsburg. Mama Ginsburg did that with me when I was a kid, right? And so code word is like one of the only things I've ever said that is now universally everywhere. And the idea is that you, your kid knows if they're in trouble, they can call you or text you, drop a code and you turn on your mama bear side and you're like, where are you? I'm coming to get you. So with all of that said, let me bring up Foyden Hall. And I would say that I've used that a lot and tried to tell the family this allows your your kid to save face with their friends. If you call, I mean, if your kid calls you and says, mom, I have a horrible headache, your job is to go, horrible headache means I need to come get you now. Yes. And that lets the kid out without conveying to their friends, I'm calling my mom because I'm scared or I want to go home. And the parent can be like, they're coming to the rescue, which feels pretty good to be asked to help, right? So- Feels awesome. I, I totally would agree with that. And I think that's a really good strategy. Awesome. And and so, yeah, I love it. And the, the, the last part of it is when you've been asked to engage with your child, talk about it the next day, but never, ever, ever punish a kid for coming to you. Similarly, I'd love to talk after I make my next point, I'd love to talk about how we make our offices safe spaces for kids. But But let's back up. I just want to make one point. I have produced a lot of materials to make this easier for pediatricians and youth serving professionals. I am aware of how much time this takes. 
Our role is to have that pivotal conversation that sets the tone for effective parenting and then to send parents to credible resources. So as I write a lot of AAP books to be these credible resources, but that involves parents buying something. But I will tell you that if they go to parentandteen.com, parentandteen.com, you will see all of this stuff up there on the web for absolutely free. All sorts of information on how to be a balanced parenting, scripts to use with your kids, an understanding of the teen brain, how to be a role model. It's all there for absolutely free. And in our hospital system, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, every adolescent visit, the after-visit summary, parents get a link to parentandteen.com. Every pediatric practice in the country can do it. It comes from the Center for Parent and Teen Communication. I run it. I guarantee you it is evident and rooted in evidence, rooted in balanced parenting. It is pro-teenager. It refutes the undermining myths of adolescence, but it is skill-based and credible and deeply diverse, right? I, I love I love that. That's such a practical, I mean, it's such a practical suggestion is to put it on the AVS. I mean, I think the AVS is oftentimes wasted real estate with a whole bunch of other stuff rather than putting what could be really helpful. And the other piece of that, when you say about trusted resources, that's where as pediatricians and other clinicians is that we need to partner with those folks in our communities who are, who are the trusted therapists that are going to convey this message. And is it possible that pediatricians can partner up with our therapists to say, Hey, this is how I'm going to be talking to teens. I would love it if we could use the same language and have sort of a partnering. So I know when I send somebody to see you that we're reinforcing each other. Amen. And that's exactly the way it works. And what we have to realize is that our role as pediatricians is to be the stable forces in kids' lives and the referral source that can refer in a straight-based, non-stigmatizing way for those kids who are deserving of more focused attention than we can give in our offices. And I think also we can be, we can also say to parents, I know that this may be tough sometimes. I'm here for you. I'm, I can support you. And if things get hard, call me. I mean, I've heard it. I've heard it from other people. I've experienced myself and I'm here to, to kind of ride the ride with you. That is gorgeous. Amen. And and the other thing that we can convey to parents is that good parents do not raise perfect children. Mm-hmm. Good and great parents have children who struggle. What defines a good parent is recognizing when their child needs more than they can give and works to get their children what they deserve, right? And that's a beautiful line that pediatricians can use that takes away shame and stigma. And if you followed it up with that gorgeous line you just said about me being a, you know, I'm going to be sending your son or I'm going to recommend your son sees Dr. So-and-so in the community, but I'm here to always support you. That is just gorgeous. And again, Center for Parent and Teen Communication, one of the most like what we do at CHOP is you get a generic link in your ABS, but if you've referred your kid to a professional for counseling or whatever, 
you do another link. It's like a dot phrase. You do another link and you get linked directly to this piece on ways that parents can use strength-based communication to help their child to understand what professional help can do for them. And we can put that link in your along your podcast. I'll give it to you so that every perfect have it. And I'm serious. We are producing this stuff for free. You can also put posters up in your waiting room, which some practices are doing with a QR code so that Mm. people in your waiting room, so that parents don't have downtime when they're waiting, when you're having a pride, those private 15, 20 minutes with the adolescent, the parents can be like QR coding and learn something about communicating with their kid. That is so clever. Let me ask you before I forget about those 15 minutes of privacy, because we've used some language and I've just cringed sometimes when I've heard staff, mom, dad, we separate you for this piece of the parent. And I mean, I've said to parents often, I'm going to have you step out with me so they can get undressed and we'll have a couple conversations. But but what about that? How do we set the tone and how do we say it in a way that doesn't feel like I'm like severing, like <laughs> tearing you away yeah. to have some secret conversation that you shouldn't be a part of, even though it is a confidential conversation? Yeah. So this is a really long topic. And in Reaching Teens, which is the professional toolkit, we have a chapter just on setting the stage. And what we want is for parents to understand that this is a strategy. The mm-hmm. simple message that says, I'd like you to step out now, conveys, by the way, I know I can do a better job of parenting than you can, which is why I'm keeping secrets with your child. And instead, I set the stage with parents and kids together the first time that I'm going to have an adolescent visit. And I want to say, I know this takes five minutes, but it's your most critical five minutes, right? Of, of the adolescent period where I talk about what this is going to be like. I talk about why I'm going to speak to the child alone because I think about health as involving, of course, your body but also your mind and your emotions and stress. And I try to create an opportunity where young people can ask any question they want to, to me in private. But I also say, before I'm going to ask you, Mr. and Mrs. Patient's last name to step out of the room, I want you to know that your role early in the visit is to be the teacher, because I'm going to ask all sorts of questions that your child may not know the answer to And so I really want you to be the teacher. And then I look at the kid and I say, let me tell you the way this visit will work. After I know why your parents brought you in, I'm going to have some private time with you where you're going to have the opportunity to ask me any question you want. And if you do, I'm not going to assume you're doing something. I'm just going to assume you're wanting to become wiser. I will also ask you questions. And when I ask you questions, my goal is to make sure you know how to stay healthy and if you have any concerns that they're addressed, I want you to know that I'm going to ask you to be honest with me and I will always be honest with you. I also want you to know that my job is for you to, my goal is for you to be healthy. I'm not here to judge you. I take care of all sorts of young people. What I want you to know now is that this conversation will be private. Dr. Words you'll hear throughout your life is confidential, right? This information will be kept private between us. Why? So that you can talk about anything without it going anywhere. Not to the ladies at the front desk, not to your teachers, not even to your parents. 
But remember I told you I was going to be honest? Well, I also want you to know that if I was ever so worried about you, that I thought your life was in immediate danger, I would not be able to keep this private. My job is to protect you immediately. I got one more but for you, patient's first name. My question for you is, if you were in trouble, who would you go to? Mm. Who are the most mm. important people to get you out of trouble? Now, what do you do? You listen, because they might go my Aunt Betty, they might go my priest, but they're almost definitely going to say my mom or dad, just yeah. because of their presence in the room. At this point, you say, I sure hope so. So I want you to know that if something does come up, I want you to know that I might really talk to you about how best we can talk to your mm -hmm. parents about it. Now you look at the parents and you say, Mr. and Mrs. Last Name, for this strategy to work, and you underline with your face the word strategy and adult and adult communication, what's really important is that your child knows they can talk to me about anything and that if we come to you, that you will become involved as guides. You can give limits, you can give advice, you can give guidance, but that nothing that comes out in this office will ever lead to punishment. Mm. Because if your child learns that this is a place to get out of trouble without ever fearing getting into trouble, you and I can do great work together as a team to keep your child healthy. Score. Right. It takes, I, I love that. I love it, that. It takes five minutes. Yeah. We do it once. Now, you've, let, let me talk about the difference. What most people, when they're setting the stage, they look at the kid and they go, everything will be kept confidential unless I think you're going to hurt yourself, hurt someone else, or someone's hurting you. Well, think about, I've done research on this, by the way. Think about this from a 15-year-old's a point of view. Their pediatrician says, everything's private unless, you're, unless I think you're going to hurt yourself. Well, guess what? A 15-year-old thinks that we think cigarettes hurt them. They think mm -hmm. that we think skipping school hurts them. They think all of these things. And unless we are explicit mm -hmm. in what we mean, meaning their life is in danger, we are not going to know what's going on in their lives. They will yeah. hold the information we need. And this strategy says to parents, we are a team. Yeah. We are a team. Trust me here. This is a strategy. I love that I, I you have said the word strategy. And so I, I'm going to make sure in my takeaways that I underscore that because these are strategies for us as skill builders. One of the other words that I think fits in this that I've used that it's been helpful when I'm talking about referring a kid to a therapist or something is think of them as a coach. This is something, This is just like when you're working on your baseball swing and you have somebody that can kind of help you do it in a different way that has more successful. That's what a therapist really is. They're a coach to help you when you feel overwhelmed. How can you do it differently? And But I love the part about this is a, what I'm doing, saying to parent, what I'm doing is I'm giving you kind of an out so that I can be the other person that will be a helper for this kid. It's You're not on your own either. And so I'm kind of laying the groundwork so you you aren't alone. I love everything you said. I loved your metaphor. Not, it's not a metaphor. It's the reality of framing this as a coach because not only have you given them a nice framework that is positive, you have avoided the brokenness framework. 
Mm. You have a problem. You are a problem. You need to be fixed. Instead, you basically said you possess skill sets that a coach can help you hold. Gorgeous. Perfect. Well, you've said so many things that I think are, they're not huge corrects. I mean, I think the, the kind of message I would give to pediatric clinicians is you possess all of these incredible skills and you do amazing things all the time, but words matter. And this is a strategy that might get you better results when you're working with kids to really achieve what you want. And that's to have your patients thrive and survive right? We want the same thing as the parents do. Hey man, I'm not smart enough to come up with any huge corrects. So really all that I want to do is reframe some of the language and give a little bit more toolkit, a little bit more tools for pediatricians to be able to be most effective. Can I, in that bay, can I take two minutes to teach what I actually think is the single most important thing? Yeah. I, Yeah, I got to get the right piece of paper here so I can write this down and make sure I've got it. All right. It's really more of a feeling than than anything brilliant I'm about to say. We pediatricians are nice people. Besides those four-year-olds on the desert island I want to be with, I want to hang out with pediatricians, right? And as pediatricians or pediatric clinicians, we like to be cheerleaders. We like to be deeply positive. And when we hear that the young people we are serving are doing good things, we like to cheerlead. But what our role really is, is to be ever-present forces in their lives throughout development. And we are helpful when things are going well. We are absolutely critical when they're not. And we want to be the people that they come to when they're not. So if you ask kids who are suffering what they really want from adults, they want adults who have their back. What does this mean? Behavioral change is a process, not an event. And as forward movement and backward movement and forward movement and backward movement. So how do we talk to kids? When a kid comes to us and they're like, hey, Dr. Ken, I got straight A's in school. My inclination is to be a cheerleader. Like, I want to go like, you go. I'm so proud of you. You want to get straight. You're getting straight A's. You want to be a lawyer. When you grow up, you can work for justice. You're an amazing human being. I'm so proud of you. Then what happens? The next semester, the kid gets A's. They're coming to me. Semester after that, they get A's. They're coming to me. And I'm going to feel so good about it. But then their dad dies or goes to prison. Their mom becomes depressed. They become parentified and begin taking care of their brothers and sisters. They aren't beginning their own homework till 11. To get their heads to slow down, they smoke weed at midnight. They're up at five to get their kids ready for school. They fall asleep in class. And now their teacher says, what do you do when even coming to school if you're falling asleep in class? Now they're getting C's and D's. Will they come to us? No, no. Because we have been cheerleaders in their life. And we have become one more set of adults they do not want to disappoint. Mm. And so what? So instead, all that I want us to all learn to do, here's the skill. This is the easiest skill imaginable. Change from celebrating content to celebrating relationship. So when your kid, the kid you're serving, tells you anything good in their life, rather than going, I'm so proud of you because... 
say, I'm so happy you include me in the news of your life. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you always tell me what's going on. It means so much to me that we've had this relationship. I want to be here for all the good times and even the struggles, right? We learn to say that because we don't want to be just another set of adults. Kids are afraid of disappointing. And instead, we want to be the adult presence that's there no matter what, because that's our power. That's our power. That's our real difference during adolescence is we're going to catch the kids who are crashing because they know they can come to us. That's why we set the stage in the beginning of adolescence. And that's why we celebrate our relationship. We do that. We are pivotal. Are you sure you're not a cheerleader? <laughs> I just felt that was kind of like a come to Jesus moment. I, I love that part about, I mean, I'm all about relationship. I love that part about, thank you so much for including me. I love that. That is so beautiful. And because it, it, it does invite them in. And actually, if you look at the NIMH toolkit on suicide prevention, the first thing you do is praise the patient for sharing. Thank you so much for sharing. I know this is hard to talk about. I'm here to help. Let's go. So that is awesome. I think this is a perfect place to stop. But before I do, I have one more question because you are a very positive person and you're very creative and passionate. If you could go back and talk to yourself when you were a resident, what advice would you give yourself? First off, you're right. I am passionate, creative, and genius. Uh, <laughs> so, um, so what I also am, all kidding aside, is the most uneven human being on earth. The fact that I'm so good with teenagers, which I truly am, is based on being super intuitive and kind of reading people. Um, but that intuitiveness also means that there's a lot of things I'm really not good at. I am the most uneven human being on earth. And in the context of my life, I can talk to a kid who's in a gang really comfortably, but I can't change a tire, right? I mean, really, really, I'm not kidding. I can't. And <laughs> I have no sense of direction. North is whatever direction I happen to be looking at. In the context of medicine, I can engage deeply with a teenager and I'm really good at diagnosis, but I can't read an EKG because my brain can't settle to read an EKG. Reading a table or large data is extraordinarily difficult for my brain that sees so many things at the same time. So if I was going back to as to me as a resident, I would say, stop disliking yourself for those things that are not your strengths and begin celebrating your strengths. Because during residency, I was more upset about not reading any, not being able to read an EKG than I was about all those things I was good at. And I just wish that I could take away some of that pain I created for myself. I, I love that. I, I think it's we're hard on ourselves. And I too celebrate intuitiveness and relationship building. For me, and I talk about it on lots of podcasts, it's like the magic in the room. It, I mean, it, to me, that's the heart of pediatrics and medicine for that fact is it's what we, it's how we are with other people. And that's where the gifts are and the fun too. But I would agree. If somebody told me that I had to do statistical analysis, no, I, I, 
I mean, I can barely know what a P is. I just go like to the conclusion and hope somebody else is smarter than me that sorted it out. I mean, I know if there's an N of five, that maybe you can't attribute that to large populations, but that's about it. That's about it. And and people have tried to explain it to me and I'm not great at that. So I hear you. And I think to your point about being kinder to ourselves, I recently was talking about the imposter syndrome, that feeling like I'm, I'm just not good enough and don't people know that? And God, I don't want them to see that. But I think it's that vulnerability that actually makes us good at what we do. So I, I appreciate what you're doing. This is like so fun. And I, I, I feel like I just need to broadcast it. So that's what we're doing. <laughs> and I'll make sure to include all your resources in the show notes for listeners. And good. I, that's great with your book. Congratulations. That's awesome. And I know you've, you've written, you're very busy doing uh, lots of great things. So thank you. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for all you're doing in service to kids and to all the pediatricians listening. Yeah, sometimes I do sound like a cheerleader, but I literally never say anything I don't mean. I think we are critical in the lives of kids. And yeah. Families. Yeah. And, and, and I think conveying that to parents is, I mean, I think that if you don't do anything else, conveying to parents that they matter to kids is is a huge gift. So thank you for that. Well, keep doing all the work you're doing and, and have a great rest of the day. Thank you so much. Thank you. A huge thank you to Dr. Ginsburg. This has been a really interesting conversation and so appreciate his time and expertise and so glad I could share it with you all. Here are my takeaways. Number one, This conversation may challenge you. It certainly challenged me, and it may make you sit up and pay attention to how we've been viewing adolescents in a way that may not be that helpful. Number two, words matter, and the social dialogue around adolescents and our own words may set them up for a struggle. Things like, enjoy this time, it's not going to last, or teenagers. Oh my God, I can't believe you have three teenagers at home. I'm so sorry. Yeah, me too. I've said some of these things and boy, am I regretting it having listened to Dr. Ginsburg. We as adults, parents, and clinicians are maybe part of the problem. Number three, the myths. Teenage brains, all engine, no brakes. They're risk takers. They see themselves as invincible and they hate their parents versus Teens are super learners, explorers, and very much need adults, especially parents who they care about most of all. Number four, to our parents, it is very important that we let them know that they matter in an enormous way. Parents often wonder, do I matter anymore? I certainly had that thought. I just was in my head. I wasn't ready to not be needed. Well, had the conversation been focused in a different way, of course I was needed, but just in a different way. Number five, our job is to reframe adolescence for parents and for teens. And to our parents, you are the lighthouse and the guide. While there are firm and clear rules because kids need and actually want them, there is room to fail and to fall. This is how we all learn by stretching and tumbling. And trusted adults must convey We are here for you when you need us. Number six, start the conversation about adolescence and what it means when kids are coming to your practice. Start at 10 or 11. Talk with the patient and the parents about what to expect. 
that what is coming next is amazing, exciting, and that we all take the ride together. Dr. Ginsburg gave the analogy of a baby bird who loves the nest, being fed, kept warm, but over time the nest gets prickly, too small, and the bird wants to get out and find out about the world beyond the nest. And this is what birds need to do to survive. So our job is get the kids out of the nest, but do it in a way that supports them so that they are ready to fly. Our job is to honor independence. Number seven, by making time for kids with the clinician one-on-one, we are building strategies for independent thinking. Help parents know that we are not keeping secrets, we are offering another space for growth, and that they are part of the journey, not outsiders. Number eight, okay, there are going to be challenges because it's life. The best thing we can do is to co-regulate and lend our calm. We can also offer kids strategies when they're in a tight spot. This is the code word that signals, I need you, and never punish kids for using the code. You may need to have a conversation the next day, but honor that they actually called you for help. That's what we set them up to do. These are the proverbial teachable moments. Number nine, when kids share successes with us rather than, wow, so proud of you, we might instead say, I am so honored that you included me to share in your life. The ups and downs, all of it, I'd like to hear it. Now the teen doesn't need to worry about disappointing you. They know that you have their back no matter what and that they can come to you about anything, even the hard stuff. Number 10, and we can let parents know that we have their backs too. They are not alone. Number 11, check out the show notes for many resources and get ready for Dr. Ginsburg's new AAP book, Congrats, You're Having a Teen, on store shelves October 4th. Number 12, expect magic. Thank you so much for listening. As always, so appreciate everything that pediatricians and pediatric clinicians do, and all of you who take care of kids. I know there's teachers out there gearing up for school, parents who are prepping kids for school, and kids who are ready to get back and see their friends and learn. So again, thank you for your time. Enjoy these last few weeks or days of summer. By the time you get this, it will be nearing the end. But hey, it's been a beautiful time and here's to fall. If you enjoyed this podcast or any of the other episodes, please share them. And if you can review and rate, I would so appreciate it. It's how others find the podcast. I have a whole new slate of upcoming guests that I can't wait to share with you. And it's really important that we get the word out so that all of us are doing our very best for kids. Thanks again, and I'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pediatric Meltdown. In the words of Maya Angelou, do the best you can until you know better. Then when you know better, do better. Let's do better together. This podcast was made possible by the team at Streamlined Podcasts. Music was composed by Connor McHugh and cover art was designed by Alexia Barrero.